This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with the Storage Impact Podcast, and I'm joined today by Sebastian Jean from Fizen. Sebastian, good to see you. Hi, nice to talk with you today. So could you give us a little bit of background to yourself and uh, what you do at the company? Well, I am Faison CTO, and you know that's a funny term because there's no used, um, standard definition. People will approach the, road, the role differently, and so the way I see the role is that it is my job to understand where the technology is going, talk to my peers, uh, both above and below me in the industry, and um, understand what their priorities are, talk to the customers, understand what their priorities are, and then make sure that the tech, bring all that all back in-house, and make sure that that technology works works its way into the products that we're developing. Okay, and Faison as a company, give us a little bit of background there. Faison started 20 years ago, maybe 22 now. It started right around the year 2000 with our CEO, KS was young man. We're actually roughly the same age and he's built himself, started off with a company with a few thousand dollars and built it up into a $2.2 billion SSD company. So he's definitely understands how to grow a business. But it started off with a small group and initially we focused on USB storage. We made the first um, USB, what we called pen drives at the time. That was a term that floated around in the 80s early 90s and well yeah 90s <laughs> yeah and then uh, we've grown steadily from usb drives and sd cards to ssds uh in the client space and then recently this year we announced our first enterprise drive and it is very competitive with the current leaders in the market so we've we've had a, a good we've evolved with nand and grown up with it Perfect. I actually have a box somewhere, which for those people who are listening on audio will not be able to see it, which has got all of those sort of old pen drives. I've still got 32 megabyte um, SD cards and all sorts of things kept for historical purposes. And uh, it's amazing to think how quickly that technology has evolved in the last 20 years. The capacities have gone up, the costs have gone down. It's really changed significantly. So that actually leads us into our discussion for today. And it's quite a contentious one, I think, in some respects. And that's the idea that the hard drive is going away, that somehow the hard drives will all be kicked out of the enterprise, or at least, I'd say they're probably starting to, to leave the home market and have done for quite a while. But from an enterprise perspective, that there's an end to this and that we see an end to the hard drive. And mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of a challenge, but I'm really looking forward to understanding your view on it and, and where you think that we're headed. Yeah. And let's start with that. I mean, the fact that I've seen, I don't know how many predictions that say, you know, cut over by 2025, you know, all these sorts of different things that say the hard drives had it and it's all going to be SSDs. But I'm not I'm not convinced yet. So convince me as to why you think that's going to happen, Sebastian. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the same thing too. Uh, my career started roughly, I don't know, it predates the SSDs, but you know, it started roughly when when the SSDs were starting to be popularized. You could get, you know, these these laptop notebooks that were two inches thick, and that was considered portable. And back then, mm. and they weighed a lot yep. <laughs> because of the batteries and the hard drives. And when the first hard uh, SSDs came out, they were in PCM CIA cards that fit into the expansion spot slot. And people said, oh, you know, the first articles popped out. SSDs are going to replace hard drives. And that was roughly in 1996, and that same drumbeat kept going on year after year after year and we're 2020 and ssds have not replaced hard drives and so 
most of us who did are growing up in our careers in in our adult workspace as we moved up we've heard this and we haven't seen it happen and we've got our legacy memory kicking and going yeah okay here's another article saying the same thing that hasn't happened for two decades the thing is things are changing so we've seen a steady price decline year over year and i have some numbers here on my screen in 2017 an enterprise ssd cost about 40 cents per gigabyte in 2019 it was down to 28 cents a gigabyte in 2021, it was around 24 cents a gigabyte, and the slope has been fairly steady. And so if you just extrapolate that slope, just do yeah. a basic extrapolation, what you see is a convergence of HDD and SSD around 2026, which will also coincide with two terabit NANDI. Okay, I'm going to pick out a couple of things there. First of all, yes, I agree, you know, there's a downward trend. There's a downward trend dollar per gigabyte for hard drives, but that tends to be driven not necessarily by the reduction in cost of the manufacturing, but more to do with the fact that a unit cost is typically about $600 when those devices come out new. And the reduction is actually achieved by increased capacity. So the capacity goes up, the price, the unit price stays the same, and the price drops. So are you saying that the, the reduction in flash price in SSD prices is accelerating quicker than that for hard drives yeah hard drives if you look at the historical scale and my data goes back to 2017 um, if you go further back then you'll start to see um, technology driving the cost reduction but starting around 20 you know the 2010s 2015s it's been pretty flat at around two to three cents per gigabyte for a long time and what's driven the cost reduction has been capacity increase true and also volume economy of scale but in 2020 that was the first year where the total number of drives produced uh, as a whole including the client market there were more ssds produced than hdds and that was the tipping point for economy of scale so if you factor in the reduction of economy of scale and you see that technology for hard drives has not improved significantly since 2010 in 20 you know in the in the 2010s, 2008, 2010, 2012 is when we first started hearing about Hammer, which is heat-assisted magnetic recording, and MAMR, which is microwave-assisted, and there's a laser variant too, but they're all basically heat-assisted. From the point at which research started to the point at which it was productized was 10 to 12 years. So it's taken 10 to 12 years to get to this point, and essentially hard drives missed their window. If that technology had popped up in 2010, we would likely see hard drives continuing with economy of scale and technology improvements well into 2030. But that didn't happen. And so now we're at a point where uh, SSDs are doubling very consistently every two to three years, and, and their volume is now surpassing hard drives. Okay, we'll, we'll get into why that difference is occurring in terms of that in a second. But I, I think I agree with you that in terms of hard drives, that increase in that growth that we were promised has definitely slowed off significantly. It seems that we've moved to a market where we're doing absolute increments. So we, we usually see something like two terabyte increments per drive. And of course, if the drive capacity is 18 terabytes going to 20 or 20 going to 22, percentage-wise, that's a reducing percentage each time. And you can sort of see that. So I agree with you on that one. I would say that there are other techniques coming along which might make hard, hard drives a bit more interesting. We'll talk about those at the end. Yeah. Let's talk about why SSDs though are doubling each year. Is that because we're reliant purely on the number of layers that we're building into these devices and the fact that we're increasing the layer count, we're increasing the density that way, or are there other factors that are going into this? Well, there are two aspects. Um, if you remember when we were at the end of planar NAND, which was or basically the beginning of 3D NAND because it wasn't a hard cutover, but 3D yep. NAND suddenly became the big thing in 
around 2013, 2015 is when that happened. Okay. Um, and since then, 3D NAND has replaced planar NAND. And while some of it is still in sustaining foundries, by and large, everything new is 3D. And so at the end of planar NAND, um, and during the transition phase, we were talking about one Y cell size, which was basically the same density as logic cells like from foundries like TSMC, mm-hmm. where we're talking about seven nanometer cells, five nanometer cells, three nanometer cells. Well, one Y would have been 12 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so these cells were so small that it could only hold a handful of electrons. And so it was really hard to get them to retain data and still meet the three month retention target. That is sort of the industry norm. When we went to multiple layer devices instead of planar devices, um, the cells got fat again, that we just bulked them right up because yeah. we focused on the vertical growing. They went to about 40, didn't they? I think about that sort of size maybe. That's uh, about right. Yeah. And the thing is, they haven't raced back down to that, you know, 12 nanometer size or smaller. Instead, what they've done is they've focused on the layer count. So right now, the focus is on layer count. Eventually, and, and at, the, at the atomic, not the atomic scale, but at the scale at which NAND is built, these look like crazy 300-story skyscrapers. They are mm. super thin, tall pillars. At some point, this will become too hard to manage. And so cell, cell size reduction will come back into play. And then there's just, you know, something else that you could do is have the concept of floors on these multiple lever dies where you basically have essentially a flat plane and then build it up again that while that fat, flat plane loses space it's not nearly as much space as starting a whole new die so there are multiple ways in which we can improve density before we hit physical limits and it's that floor technique something that's available today or is it in development is it going to be no it's just something it like, that i was thinking about okay i was just thinking you know technologies like that are they like the 10-year life cycle to bring to the market like Hammer would be, or are they likely to come to the market fairly quickly by comparison? Well, I I still think there's quite a lot of room, surprisingly, with layer growth, and cell size reduction will be cheaper than this this concept of building a breaking point between one stack of skyscrapers and the next. So if I had to guess, because I'm not a NAND developer, Mm -hmm. we'll continue to go up with layers, we'll continue, we'll start to reduce the cell size. And then eventually, instead of having individual die, we'll essentially smoosh them together and have thin separators between stacks of skyscrapers. Okay, so let's think about product differentiation then before we dive into some more cost uh, analysis. In the hard drive market, we, we pretty much know that the performance hard drives disappeared. So they were quite easily replaced by flash. Very, very straightforward. They never got past probably two terabytes. Most of them were sort of maybe a terabyte. Yeah. That's a, you know, it, it never went really past about two terabytes. And, and especially in the two and a half inch drives, I think we probably got to 900 gig, maybe 1.2. And then we started to see those 15K drives disappear off and that was the end of that. And and that market, the hard drive market is without a doubt moved to, to being a, a capacity market. It's definitely moved away from performance. Now, in the SSD market, we're doing lots of other techniques. We're doing all the layering. We're doing various different things. We're starting to use things like QLC. And I've noticed that latency is stretching out again when we're doing, uh, I guess, writes probably rather than reads. Yes. Now, how much of a problem is that going to be in terms of our scaling? And is that likely to see challenges uh, I do have one answer to this, but I'll, I'll let you go ahead and uh, see what you think first. Well, it's interesting because if SSDs, even on the enterprise side, stayed in the one, two, four terabyte range, and that's just where the market stayed, then yeah, QLC's latency is on the right is significant. Read performance is fairly similar, but write performance really lags on QLC. 
unless you have a lot of parallelism. And this is where petabyte scale storage comes in. Once you start talking about 16, 32, 64 terabyte SSDs, then you have so much NAND parallelism that your bandwidth goes up substantially. So the question becomes really how much of an energy budget do you want to give that SSD? Because most of that power is consumed during the write. So, you know, if you look at E1S and all the EDSFF form factors, E1L, E3, they have variants of their definition that allow for very high heat sinks. And part of that is for the heat generated by high bandwidth SSDs. And part of it is also to keep the uh, airflow speed down so that they're not the data centers don't sound like rocket engines right so that theoretically shouldn't be a problem I, I i saw a company called i think it was neo when i was at flash memory summit and they've they've gone down that parallelism route where they're i think forgive my ignorance of tell it's describing this tech technology incorrectly but i think the number of um right lines they were using or the way they laid it out meant they mm -hmm. they were getting a sig significantly more parallelism parallelism that's an awful word to say and they weren't necessarily building the devices themselves but they were looking to license that technology and i think they had a gen 2 and a gen 3 which is you know well into the future so you could sort of see that makes sense that then gets us into the question though as to whether people have got an appetite for 32 64 128 terabyte ssds when the market has sort of flattened out at around about the 16 mark i know you can get 32 but generally i feel we sort of hit 16 as the sort of the the, the comfortable limit yes and no so the reason we hit 16 terabyte as a limit is that's what you can do with a single board M uh, U.2, which is a two and a half inch form factor. A single board U.2 that's seven millimeters thick with 512 gigabit die, you can get to 16 terabytes. Once you go to one terabit die, you can go to 32. And if you're willing to work with a 15 millimeter drive, you can get to 64. And then if you factor in the newer form factors like E1L, which has the largest board surface area and, and thus the most space for NAND, you can get even higher. And, and so the thing is, if you're talking about a, a typical data center, their focus that has had a hard drive mentality, then yeah, that, that's the space that they're in for the most part. Yeah. But the thing is, the number of PCIe lanes that a CPU actually has is limited. And so you're not likely to solve the problem like you used to with hard drives, where you had these giant cabinets full of spinning disks. Instead, it makes a lot more sense to have those four lanes going to a very dense SSD. And then the industry has accepted the, the mechanical reliability, and the drives have proven, that their mechanical reliability is substantially higher to the point where you don't even need RAID 6 anymore because the rebuild time is not measured in days or weeks. And, and we actually have requests. Right now, we're having requests for 32 terabyte SATA SSDs. Um, okay. You know, uh, so th there's definitely an appetite for very high density SSDs. And it sounds like some of that has been driven by the, the fact that the form factor model is changing. And, you know, as you said, mm -hmm. we're not dependent on two and a half inch drives, three and a half inch drives. We're getting all of the new, newer form factors with the, which is slightly wider in each slot. And as you said, that gives the power benefit mm -hmm. that we can actually do this. Maybe there's, there's a bit of um, a lag there where mm -hmm. the actual replacement of that technology in the data center in terms of servers and hardware is going to have to come along to drive the adoption of the devices and or vice versa, I suppose. You know, they, they're almost like coming there in parallel, aren't they? Well, they are. EDSFF was ratified, which is the new long and skinny, or like, for example, their E1S short is like a slightly fatter M.2, but it has a better yeah. connector, hot swap capabilities, and things like that. So that standard was ratified two or three years ago. Well, it takes a couple years 
it has to intercept uh, enterprise selling cycles, which yeah. are roughly three years in length. So, you know, it, it kind of appeared halfway between the two. Companies have to think about it. Uh, customers have to request it. Then it, you know, so it's going to take another three-year cycle before it kicks in. Then it takes them a couple years to develop it. And so we're at this point now where more and more chassis um, from big chassis suppliers are supporting these new form factors. And so the transition is happening. It's just not overnight. Yeah, I know that when I used to do that sort of stuff and we'd be in designing systems and I used to do, um, I'd d design, uh, say, backup systems and stuff like that. Less less so than anything to do with storage. We just, you know, buy whatever the vendor sold us. But a lot of the time when we were de developing something new, there would be that cycle of going, well, what's available? And then you'd be looking at things like internal bandwidth and, and you know, networking and various other things. So that leap to use a certain device type or a certain media type possibly wouldn't happen straight away, even if it was available. You know, there'd be a bit of a, a lag when you, you rethought that. But yeah, I can see yeah. that, that that sort of direction. So let's go and talk about TCO and, and that side of it a bit more, because I, I think mm -hmm. if there is going to be a cutover and if there is going to be something where we do see the, the justification for SSDs being the de facto standard first, mm -hmm. there's going to be a, a price factor here and a TCO factor. And right. generally, we're quite lazy in the industry. And we like the old dollar per gigabyte measure because it's a nice, easy mm -hmm. one to do comparisons to. But it's just way too simplistic, I think. Well, the dollar per gigabyte is simple, but in a way, economy or economics drives what storage gets adopted. And so I've, I've noticed two trends looking back at, you know, how things have developed. SSDs were better than hard drives, you know, substantially by large integer multipliers initially. And now they're, they're orders of magnitude faster on bandwidth and two orders of magnitude faster on IOPS. And that's essentially what it takes to displace an incumbent, that and price parity. And so, you know, and something that is better, but still solid integer multipliers and then orders of magnitude and cost, that's never going to displace the incumbent. But if you're talking about TCO hard drives, the first issue that they have is reliability. And, and they, they tend to die uh, in clusters. Whereas NAND, um, the concept of early death in NAND blocks was a thing maybe 10 years ago, but really mm. isn't now. And what we find is NAND blocks within an SSD tend to die at a uniform rate. There's no early death, there's no clustering, there's no late death. And one block is not more likely to die at zero cycles versus 3,000 cycles, which is the typical max for, for enterprise. 3,000, 5,000, and 10,000, sometimes right. 7,000, it depends. But so because they, they don't cluster in depths like hard drives do, what there's no real need, and the read and write speed is so fast, there's no need to have RAID 6 anymore. You can get by and have the same reliability with RAID 5. So that's giving you back a certain percentage of your slots back to user uh, usable capacity. That's number one. Number two, hard drives die fairly regularly and in a large data center they actually have to pay people to walk up and down the aisles to pull drives and slap ones in because they die enough of them die in a day that you actually it makes sense to pay somebody to do that if you replace it with a more reliable drive then that op operational cost goes away so on on two levels both from a usable density standpoint and on a reliability standpoint um, ssds have a lower operating cost I think it'd be interesting to understand a bit more about that reliability piece and perhaps that's not a conversation for today necessarily but in it's sort of in my experience i know that in in large enterprise environments we would tend to do a lot of um, proactive sparing out of devices so mm -hmm. you knew a device was possibly likely to fail by reading the smart data and other bits and pieces and eventually mm -hmm. you get to a point where you'd think I really want to avoid a rebuild because a rebuild will be weeks because these drives are big enough and when there's activity going on. So you'd proactively spare the drive out. And then, you know, that was not a rebuild, it was a copy, so that was great. 
The challenge with that was we found that a lot of the time proactive sparing would occur when there was nothing wrong with the drive. And then that drive would be shipped back and somebody said, that was fine. You know, and you think, how many times did we copy data and move stuff around and replace drives? And how much extra were we paying? Because the algorithm that tried to work out whether that drive was going to fail wasn't very good. Now, in the hard drive market, I've, I've had a conversation with the folks who do the, the SATA standard, the SAS and the SATA standard, the mm -hmm. SCSI Trade Association, and they've highlighted how they're working on some techniques that will allow us to say, well, we could just fail a platter, we could just fail, you know, that part of a, a drive, which is, I suppose, sort of helpful. Yeah. Is there an equivalent to that within the SSD market where you would just say, well, that section's gone, we'll just stop using it? Is that what you mean by the, the fading out side of things? Yes and no. So there's no indication in NAND that it's about to die. Right. What can like um because a failure tends to be a physical thing where um some super tiny little internal partition fries okay. and and then just pulls, you know, kills a bunch of cells with it. So for example, you don't have an indication that like, oh, power is going up or writes are slower or reads have more errors. Right. That kind of warning, like flickering doesn't happen. It's either working or it's not. And it's not proportional to the amount of cycling that it has. And the error rate is, is generally only caused by time and heat. And those tend to be constant in a data center. And then the SSDs themselves have algorithms where they scan the media in between host operations to make sure that it's healthy and it's not like, for example, if there was, you know, gigabytes of files that were written once five years ago and aren't accessed again, in theory, nothing would cause that if we did nothing, nothing would cause those blocks to be read. Well, we have proactive algorithms that go through and scan the media to make sure that bit errors are not accumulating. Yeah, so you're not getting bit rot of any sort. Effectively, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. so should we be looking at other measurements here? Should we be looking at dollar per IOP? Should we be thinking about other types of measurements? Because potentially there are different types of drives, theoretically. I suppose, you know, you could have, you know, low-cost drives, you could have high-endurance drives, whatever. Should we be looking at other mechanisms to measure what we think the value of those drives are and, and, and when we're trying to do something so that when we're building our TCO, we have a bit more thought about that? You're going to say it depends, aren't you? Well, yeah, everything depends. It's <laughs> it all trade-offs. But, um, <laughs> but I, at the risk of repeating myself, I believe that the value proposition for an SSD comes down to the fact that you don't need to spend so much slots on redundancy, and you don't really have to worry about rebuild time because they're fast. Uh, and that drive, when it's in rebuild state, is not contri it's essentially only focusing on that, which is just a general property of, of RAID rebuilds. And, and so if you factor in those two things alone, you're essentially getting N percent more out of your data center than you would have otherwise. That in and of itself is a huge you know, value multiplier. And then you look at the dollar per gigabyte, and once you're within one or two cents of hard drives, then the question becomes, you know, then those other secondary factors like less redundancy become significant, and then less staff to maintain those drives also become significant. So I still think that they're valuable metrics, and even though they're simple, you can look at dollars per gigabyte or watt per megabyte per second and things like that, and, and they matter too, but operational costs for SSDs and hard drives when they're spinning are roughly the same, you know, unless you're going into the crazy high bandwidth SSDs. But if you're doing that, you're typically not having as many of them, so they balance each other out. I, I do believe it's dollar per gigabyte and operational costs that are the primary metrics for transitioning. Yeah, I think I agree with you about, you know, those sort of potential peripheral 
metrics that you could be using. You could be looking at, as you said, staff, or it could be risk that you're concerned about. It could be mm -hmm. the fact that even a rebuild, just doing a rebuild is a risky issue. So you just rather have that done as quickly as you could possibly get away with it. You don't want to have it hanging around. So those things become a bit more difficult to quantify if you're trying to put a TCO together. But I, I guess in my, my experience, I would say that if you get to that point, then you're probably at a tipping point where you've already convinced yourself that you're pretty much close enough anyway. Because if it's near enough financially acceptable, you can usually p persuade people that that last little step of going, well, why don't we just do it anyway, is good enough by that stage. And tied to that, if you can show me that the cost per gigabyte is declining quicker in hard drives, and, and sorry, in SSDs than it is in hard drives, then me buying something today and then populating some more in 12 months, 18 months time, I'm going to be even closer to that margin than I was when I first put the physical box in. So yeah. seeding that box and then filling it up over time is probably well, going to hit me that yeah. target. SSDs essentially have in cost every time NAND doubles, and NAND has been doubling every two to three years, with occasionally it's four years, um, and will probably be slowing down as it gets more complex, but it, it's not quadrupling. So that, you know, and hard drives have been flat. Just if you look at the data, the sales data from, you know, the last even you know, what are we, last five years, it's, it's been flat. Now, yeah. maybe it'll go down to less than one cent per gigabyte. We'll see. So, I mean, there's that aspect. But then there's also the, the shipping cost. If you're buying truckloads of hard drives, a truckload of hard drive, I mean, if you look at it in, in like a hard drive, weighs considerably more than an SSD, which Absolutely. is measured in grams. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you pay for that shipping cost uh, in fuel, which gets translated into shipping costs. There are multiple cost multipliers on hard drives, which get, eliminated when you have SSDs. So factoring all that in, I think that there are multiple multiple issues which will push hard drives. Oh, and then the other point that I wanted to mention is, as other companies are looking around and they're saying, do I make my next chassis optimized for hard drives or SSDs? And they see that year over year, the SSD demand is going up. At some point, some chassis suppliers exit the market or, or OEMs that sell complete systems, start yeah. to exit the market or phase out those products and then they become less and less of them or they redirect their limited factory capacity to something that has better profit margins. Then the quant the supply goes down and the cost goes up and then you you're left with huh this total system costs more than it did last year and then you dig into it and you see oh that's why yeah so i think that there's another ang angle to that as well and that's mm -hmm. that the vendors started changing their recording model so they used mm -hmm. to talk about unit shipped and then they suddenly started talking about terabyte shipped when they mm -hmm. did their annual reports so it's clear that they weren't shipping the same volume as they were previously so yeah interesting right. having said that let's consider the cloud and compare that to the enterprise because i hear lots of stories about how public cloud providers are absolutely deploying hard drives in en masse and they're using hard drives in in systems where they're asking for very specific features to be added in and even talking to the um, standards guys a lot of the new features seem to be driven by the requirements of the cloud and the cloud providers so That's they're true. not they're not falling out of love with a hard drive and and throwing it all out in replacement of ssds so why should the enterprise be any different well hyperscalers buy exabytes of storage annually they buy much 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 larger volumes than any enterprise ever will and so for them a tenth of a cent matters it's millions of dollars but there does come a point where those other factors have to be factored in because they are ordering hard drives by the pallet load by the truck full and if you could have your shipping costs that becomes part of the acquisition cost as well or 
you know the justification for transitioning but you know if we're if we're looking back the last five six years because it takes time to work for things to work through standards you know uh, hyperscalers have lots of smart people working for them just like ssd companies and oems you know uh, storage oems you know and and when you're running a very large business you always want to have multiple positions and so one position is let's assume that hard drives just stick around for a long time what does it cost us to continue to evolve this standard? Not much, a couple salaries. And then, um, you know, but we see SSDs are coming up, so let's push some some technologies that we want to see there, and let's start engaging in com conversations with those SSD suppliers to, ascend, to ensure that the product goes where we need it to go. They still buy exabytes of hard drives, and they buy exabytes of SSDs. And the question is, at what point do they start buying more SSDs than hard drives? And my guess is when we're around that two terabyte bit and is when that question will be asked right so so that sort of says then you know okay so the hard drive in that sense still has a buyer for it and that's potentially going to be more and more the cloud providers so it's not a surprise that they're dictating where the technology is headed because the enterprise doesn't really have the the equivalent purchasing power that the the hyperscalers do uh, and I would agree with you, by the way, that if you look at the fact that our public cloud came out of the um, development of, of Amazon, and Amazon is probably the most ruthless company for every little bit of margin they could cut out of the delivery cycle of getting a product to you, it's not surprising that they're super efficient with that side of, of it too. Um, okay, so let's talk about the future then and see where we go next to see where this is all going to go. I can see that we've picked out quite a few things in this discussion. You know, you've talked about the number of layers going up, you've talked about the, you know, the die size increasing, and potentially there's opportunities for other things. How serious are we about things like PLC? How many layers do you think we can really get to practically? You know, what do you think we should be looking out for? Uh, you know, I, I see us from a layer perspective, I think we're in the 200 now, I, I can see it doubling comfortably. Can it can it triple? I don't know. Maybe at that point, it's so crazy high that we have to start looking at kind of putting breakers in between clusters of layers, what yeah. I was referring to as floors. PLC is, is an interesting thing because, you know, it's, it's the new kid on the block. Everybody gets really excited about it. But if we look at how QLC came about, you know, when the first models, or sorry, the first the first uh, products that were released with QLC had 200, 300, 600 cycles, and it's only recently that they've hit 1,200 cycles. Whereas TLC is at 3,000 cycles. Yep. PLC, you know, and and right now where QLC is mature, you know, and it'll continue to creep up for sure. It's inevitable, but it's still less than TLC. So QLC, P, sorry, PLC, so many acronyms. Yep. Once it gets mature, maybe it'll be half of QLC. So you know, 600 cycles, which means that the first, you know, occurrences of, of cells being programmed with 32 levels, which is what, you know, two to the five would, would generate, they're going to have a total cycle count measured in the tens, the twenties, the sixties, and it's going to take quite a while for it to get up there. But the thing is the incremental benefit of PLC over QLC is not nearly as good as TLC over, or sorry, QLC over TLC. Yeah. So the incremental gain is small. The challenge of making that cell retain data and the differentiation between all 32 levels is high, and it will mature just like uh, MLC matured and eventually replaced SLC and TLC replaced MLC. It, it is certain that it will improve, but I don't see that happening as, as an overnight success. It's it's likely to take five, seven years before you really see a wide deployment of PLC. It seems to me that there's a, there's a number of different scenarios that there's there's a cost one. 
there's a reliability to make it work. All of these things have got to, as you said earlier, uh, got to get to a point where the ratios are just justified. So, you know, a 1% increase in, in capacity is nobody's going to be in the slightest bit in, interested in that. And the declining return every time we add another bit in, it, it's making that scenario worse. So, yeah, perhaps PLC will take a little while to come along. But is there a, here's, here's a completely, you know, I don't know whether it's even practical or not, but can you mix and match on the same device a mixture of all the all the different media types to the extent yeah. that you could do it dynamically? And, mm-hmm. you know, so you could write stuff. Say, for instance, why couldn't you program the whole device's SLC when you first made yeah. it? And then mm-hmm. over time, as the capacity increases, you shrink it and restack it at the back end. So you could. And actually, client hard, uh, hard drives, client SSDs work like that today. Right. So uh, a NAND cell can be programmed in any mode that is supported by the decoder. Yeah. Um, and so today, NAND tends to support SLC and TLC or SLC and QLC, but there's nothing stopping that same configuration from supporting MLC. It's just that the, the circuitry for decoding it and, and making it usable isn't present. And right. so we can't do it. Yeah. But you know, could we, for example, get to some point where on the same drive we have SLC blocks that are available, TLC blocks that are available, and maybe something like QLC or PLC, and the user can decide what makes sense for what they're doing? Could we get there? The short answer is yes. That's what zone namespace on uh, NVMe is about and endurance groups. And it's just starting to be popularized and requested. The thing is that there are not a lot of applications, you know, because we, we, we've been talking about this in the industry for years about, well, what if we had like the SSD was actually just a, a dumb carrier of NAND and everything was done on the CPU, Yeah. you know, and, and that's been called open flash and it's gone by different names. And the thing is, there's a reason why we generally don't do that. Very few companies want to invest in a non-core competency to you know as a as a business differentiator so for example visa is not going to become nand experts tomorrow they're probably going to continue to focus on the financial model and you know risk prevention and things like that and they ask themselves well could we get more operational efficiency or some kind of additional benefit that would make sense to our shareholders and the answer is probably not you know so and then and then that pushes the idea of you know more direct access to the nand um, to application providers like is some database could could they integrate the usage of this technology mm. conceptually yes in practice it hasn't happened yet not in a large scale now i'm, I'm sure somebody knows of a specific database they're working with and they're going to say i'm wrong and and that is true but if you ask if you point to the market as um as a whole is this a ubiquitous thing that everybody is doing no because it turns out managing nand is really hard it's different with every generation between every nand vendor and if you consume nand at a large scale you have to have teams of people that specialize in characterizing the nand the failure modes and figuring out how to make it work so for a company like Fizon, where we work with everybody's NAND and we can defer that that investment across a wide breadth of customers, it makes sense for us to do this. But when you're your own customer, like a hyperscaler, then that operational expense falls directly on them. And then they're going to, at some point, have to justify that to their business unit and say, hey, look, 
I seem to be able to get similar capabilities for a fraction of the cost. Does this still make sense? And we're kind of starting to see that. Uh, efforts have popped up, have gone away. ZNS actually is a really nice way of giving more granular access without getting lost in the nitty gritty. But some hyperscalers absolutely want to manage the NAND themselves, and they do. Will that be true five years from now? Maybe. You know, and, and nobody can really say. Yeah. And I guess ultimately, if the standards allow you to do that and give you the ability to do that sort of stuff, at least then there's an option for some of that capability to be given up to the higher layers to be able to manage it. You don't necessarily have to go completely down the full route of every single part of the, the NAND management has to be given away to the host to be able to look after. So maybe there's a middle ground there. Um, what about new technology then? Where do we think we're going to head with things like that? Because I, I, I picked a few things out here, actually, Sebastian, because I thought it was quite funny to look at. First of all, Optane is currently theoretically dead, but could just be dormant, could be sleeping, could be like Sleeping Beauty. You know, back. it's waiting for the apple to, it was waiting for the prince to come and wake it up to, uh, you know, to give it that kiss the, of life. The main reason, I, I got to jump in. I mean, Optane <laughs> is an awesome technology, but it is not an order of magnitude better than the SSD. That's what it takes to displace it. Intel spent lost billions yep. of dollars trying to make Optane a thing. And they were only able to subsidize it because they had all that sweet CPU cash. But, you know, everybody's seeing the economy tighten and, and CPUs, yeah, I mean, they, they made the choice that after investing so much time and effort and building up the ecosystem, they realized this doesn't make sense. And yes, there, there will most likely be, you know, maybe one last release to meet contractual obligations, but I don't see this continuing, you know, for generation four, five, six, and seven. It, it has not been a money maker no fair enough um okay so that questions then whether envy dims have been killed off by that techno have been killed off because you know that the big push was that they were trying to put it in the memory space and yeah. and sell it in, in that area and it strikes me that cxl potentially is going to be a better choice for vendors to extend the memory space simply because that's just going to be more palatable on the pcie bus than trying to put stuff in into the memory bus so it seems to me that envy dims seem to be dead and that gives us a question as to whether there's any other technology. MRAM was one I picked out, but I, I'm not sure I'm aware of any other technologies that really are as scalable or as flexible as NAND at this stage. Well, that's the thing. MRAM is an awesome technology um, because it is DRAM-like in every way except cost, it is substantially more expensive than DRAM. Yeah. And density, the density is quite low. Yeah. That's well understood. I'm not re revealing anything. No, no, no. We've, we've done a podcast with the, the guys yeah. from uh, Everspin before, and they've told us exactly mm -hmm. that same thing. Yeah. It, it, the thing is, uh, you know, the, the motivator for MRAM to take over and replace NAND is probably the point at which NAND runs out of steam. And so I suspect MRAM will be continued to be developed because there is a market for it, particularly in industrial applications, that will sustain it. And it will continue to improve. And then there may be a point where NAND runs out of steam and everybody switches over to MRAM. That's not next year. You know, it's a few years away for sure. With regard to CXL, uh, you know, that's really interesting because essentially the PCIe bus kind of uh, stagnated for about seven years. So we had PCIe 3, then nothing until 2018. And, you know, that's quite a bit of time for people who got their first PCIe 3 bus, mm. then to complete college, then start working, and we're still on PCIe 3. And they're like, 
yeah, well, that's never going to improve. And then suddenly we started accelerating again. And, and that's essentially because we moved beyond the, the, the primary driver for accelerating PCIe was initially GPUs. Um, PCIe was, you know, if factoring in all the different technologies, DRAM speed, CPU speed, you just didn't, you couldn't generate faster graphics anyways and make them prettier. So you didn't benefit from higher quality textures. But we kind of hit the end of that road around, you know, 2015. 2016 2017 and by 2018 you know we had the next pcie spec which was kind of ready to go for quite a long time but just was never finished and then after that people started realizing holy smokes pcie is roughly has the roughly the same bandwidth as as ddr3 now ddr4 came about pcie5 came about they're still roughly peers once we get to pcie uh sorry uh, pcie6 and and four five yeah <laughs> anyways they're, they're, they tend to be offset by one so ddr yeah. uh, pcie gen 5 is about ddr4 speeds pcie gen 6 is about ddr5 speeds but ddr5 is definitely faster even the slowest ddr5 is faster than gen 4 gen 6 ssd but they're small integer well small multipliers instead of order of magnitude differences so from a bandwidth perspective an ssd can act as a peer to DRAM, which wasn't true 10 years ago. And then, you know, from a latency perspective, if you're focused on the 64-bit IO workload, DRAM wins, hands down. Yeah. But not all workloads are 64-bit. Uh, data structures in the in-memory database space tend to be larger, and also in machine learning tend to be larger. And so if you kind of bring the SSD into that space where it's maybe the level four cache and it's accessed with the same semantics and coherency that DRAM is accessed, um, uh, then you, you have an interesting model where you can now bring petabytes of storage at a fraction of the cost of the NAND and you don't have to go through the latency of the file system. Sorry, a fraction of the cost of the DRAM and you don't have to go through the latency of the file system. So yeah. uh, I personally believe that CXL SSDs have a place in the enterprise space and I'm talking to some partners to see if they're interested in going down that path. Excellent. I, I look forward to hearing about that because I think that's where it's going to be a really interesting part of the industry that we're starting to hear a lot of discussion about. And I think getting into the detail of why those sort of, you know, things matter, like the way that we actually addressed data and the application usage, they become a bit more important to understand. So as we sort of come to the end here, can we, what conclusions can we come to? I think we, I think I'm fairly sort of clear about where you stand, but I, I think we just wish worth just summarizing again, you know, your, your view about the timescales, because I think that they're the important ones. I think we will hit the point at which cost uh, the cost of an SSD and the cost of an HDD are now so close that secondary factors become important. I think that's tied to the two terabit NANDI. And given the trend that is pointing towards 25, 26, maybe 27, but definitely before 2030 for sure. You know, and yes, there could be economic downturns, but that will affect hard drives and SSDs. And, and SSD, sorry, SSD NAND research tends to be ongoing because it's a very long lead thing. You don't just stop it because there's an economic downturn. Yeah. Um, and if there was a calamity of some sort, either a conflict or you know weather or something, an earthquake affected, all these factories tend to be roughly in the same geographic area, so they would all be equally affected. So my personal thought feeling is that two terabit NANDI will be the arrival of you know the SSD replacing the hard drive in the enterprise space, and that's roughly in the 25, 26 time frame okay and i think no technology ever dies off you know probably paper tape is the only one i can think of that i don't see that often today but i bet somebody's going to put their hand up and go we use it we use it you know so technology yeah. tends to just drift off and become niche i think so i'm not saying that the hard drive will die necessarily but certainly 
we're getting closer to that old flash data center that people used to talk about 10 years ago. So it's going to be interesting to see. We'll, we'll have to get you to come back and have a chat with us and we'll do a measurement of that and see whether, you yeah, know, 2026 to see how accurate you were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, yeah. In the meantime, though, if people would like to learn more about Fizen and if people maybe want to stalk you online, find out, you know, more about what you're up to, where can, where can we point them to? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me um, just searching for my name and my company, Faison, on LinkedIn. Um, okay. And then we have uh, our company website, and we also have a blog, which uh, I'll have to give you the URL. Uh, maybe you can include it in the notes. I think it's something like blog.faison.com. The great thing is that we can add all of that in afterwards, and it's all, yeah. it's, it's all uh, addable to the website. And we always put a, some notes in there with everybody's links in, so anybody can go and look at it in that area and find it. Uh, However, for now, um, Sebastian, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to have the conversation and uh, look forward to another opportunity in the future to go back over things and um, see how accurate you were with your predictions. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you and I look forward to talking again. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.